first of all, I want to thank you for having me tonight. I, I'm very excited to be here and just uh, want to thank you for having these uh, conversations. I believe they're very important as they are close to what I believe about becoming a welcoming community. And I talked to Wendy about this and um, I felt the best way for me to talk to you is to tell you my story as an immigrant coming to the United States. So let me take you back to the beginning of my story. So uh, <laughs> I was born in Acapulco, Mexico. It's Acapulco, Mexico is down south by the Pacific Ocean. And uh, my mom, <clears throat> she had me when she was in her 40s. Um, she had my older brother Jonas and my sister Vicky. And after my sister Vicky was born, she didn't want to have any more kids because my dad was an alcoholic and he was also kind of abusive to my brother and my sister. So my mom supposedly had her tubes tied, you know, so she was done having babies. And so I don't know how it happens. <laughs> uh, but so when she was 40, she ended up getting pregnant with me. Uh, so it might be the doctor didn't do a good job or maybe it was a miracle, I don't know. Um, so I was born into a family. They were, we were not like starving poor, but we were struggling poor, you know. Um, there was not a lot of opportunities in Acapulco, Mexico. Uh, my brother, uh, he worked in the resort area. <laughs> and he was kind of like a, like a womanizer, you know. And, um, and in one of those occasions, he met this white woman from Waterloo, Iowa of all places, right? <laughs> and uh, she's actually sitting right here. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, they, uh, they fell in love. <laughs> and uh, and uh, so the, she was so in love that she wanted to bring my brother to the United States. Uh, but if you know about anything about the immigration laws, you understand how difficult that is. So, so she decided to bring my brother to the States without papers without documents. So she began the whole thing. It was a white woman <laughs> who brought us to this country. <laughs> um, so <laughs> this is actually weird because I think this is the first time that I told my story and my sister is actually right there. <laughs> so, um, so my brother came to live with Tara, my sister, and uh, they got married, they had children. One of them is sitting right there. Uh, Don is his name. His actual name <laughs> is Diego. Um, and they had Diego, Andres, and Brisa, and when they got married, they start, my brother started getting documents, and he, was, he got his residency, and by this time, I was a teenager, and this might sound hard to believe, uh, but I was starting getting into trouble when I was a teenager, you know, and, um, <laughs> and so, and my mom didn't know what to do with me, uh, because she's, Somehow, I think moms are able to do this with their children. They're able to see beyond what you're doing right now. And they worry about you, you know, they want the best for you. And so my mom talked to my brother and Tara, and they were trying to figure out what to do with me. And I think Tara said, like, just bring it to the U.S. And um, so my brother tried to get papers for me to come to the United States. So, but at the, as the immigration system is, the only way you can come to the United States is if you are incredibly good looking, which, you know, I know I'm cute, but I'm not, <laughs> I'm not, 
I'm not like model, uh, model good looking. Otherwise, I would, could have got papers. Uh, <laughs> you have to have money uh, so that they know you had to come back to Mexico, or you had to be a, a professional athlete, has some uh, gift, incredible gift. Uh, but I was just a 15-year-old kid, uh, so my my chances were slim. So getting coming to the U.S. with documents was uh, almost impossible. So they came up with Plan B, and that was me coming to the U.S. without documents. So when I was 15 years old, I grabbed a change of clothes and put it in a paper in a plastic bag, and I bought a bus ticket to. Uh, to Piedras Negras, near Eagle Pass, Texas. And so I, I hugged my mom goodbye. And you know, I was 15 years old. I didn't know any better. I was ready for an adventure. I didn't know what I was doing. So here I go to Piedras Negras. And when I got there, so the way they happened is my brother knew a guy from Mississippi and this guy from Mississippi was bringing three of his cousins to the U.S. without documents. And so this guy knew a smuggler who was a good smuggler. Because you got to have a connection if you ever want to come to the U.S. without documents. <laughs> you got to know your connections. And um, so he was bringing his three cousins and I was going to tag along as a fourth guy. And so, so I was going to Piedras Negras and find this guy. His name was Porfirio. And, uh, and he was going to hook me up, you know. So, so I went to Piedras Negras. I found Porfirio. And the next day, we were going to cross, right? So there's, you had to go through two checkpoints. There is the river, if you choose to go through the river. And then up ahead, like uh, a few miles, I don't know how, how far, there's another checkpoint. So the first one is the river. So my first try was like, you got to cross and you got to take off your clothes. You got to cross it naked because you don't want your clothes to get wet. Otherwise, you get across and then they know you crossed the border without documents. So my first try, I cross and I put my clothes on. And as I was putting my clothes on, the border patrol officer was standing right there. And so they arrested me. They took me to their uh, station. They took my fingerprints, and then I gave them my fake name. I gave them the name of my neighbor in Mexico, because I, <laughs> I figured he wouldn't mind at this point, and I didn't want to give <laughs> That's how good of a friend I am. <laughs> um, so then they kicked me out, and then the same day we tried again. So the trick was I was supposed to wait by the water until they gave me the signal. And then once they gave me the signal, I was supposed to get out, put my clothes, and then run towards the houses. And once I get to the houses, I'm supposed to act normal, like I just belong to this place. And I'm supposed to go to the, uh, I think it was an apple market. So, uh, so that's what I did. We, we crossed, we, we, we got near the bank, the river bank, in the water, and we were there waiting. And it was uh, March. I think, yeah, no, end, end of February, first week of March. So it was cold, the water was cold. And we were waiting for about, I don't know, hours. And then finally when the guy said, you need to get out and run. And so my, my legs were really numb 
because of the cold water. So, and then, so I had to get out and put on my clothes and then run towards the houses. <laughs> so I was feeling like uh, my legs were made out of uh, bricks or something. And I get to the houses and there's like a, like a hill that I had to go up. And then as I go up, I don't see anybody around me. And there's the border patrol arresting people. And I was like, ah, chucks, man. <laughs> you know, <laughs> firecrackers and stuff. I cannot cuss in church, so. <laughs> so I, um, and then I remember the guy said, just act like you belong, you know. So I was like, okay, I'll, you know, I'm just cruising along. And uh, it worked because I just walked right in front of the border patrol officer. And he didn't say anything. And so, uh, so that was cool. So I got to the Apple market and, I, and the, the smuggler guy came and got me. And he took me to a motel. So at the motel, it was me and these three guys. And he said, I'm going to come and get you tomorrow. And then tomorrow came. And then he said, I'm going to come and get you tomorrow. And then tomorrow came. And then he said, I'm going to come and get you tomorrow. And I think you start to see the pattern here. He couldn't come and get us because the border patrol officers were surrounding the area. Because <coughs> they had a hint that they were undocumented immigrants at this motel. And uh, so we couldn't leave either, so we couldn't get any food. So we were just arriving on water and, and coffee. coffee. <laughs> um, and so right in the middle of the week, we hear a knock on the next door. Pa, 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 pa. And the, the guy said, uh, open the door, uh, immigration. And we hear everybody next door scrambling, screaming. And, uh, and we were over here also scared like because we were next we thought uh and so in my mind i was thinking man i had to go through the whole thing all over again you know cross the river wait run wait all this time till somebody comes and gets me uh, so finally the the immigration didn't come to our door so that was good so after a week uh, this guy came and he took us, he took the cousins and he gave them a fake driver's license and he put them in a car. And he took me and he dropped me at Walmart, which it was the weirdest thing ever. <laughs> and I was like, okay. So he's like, somebody's going to come and get you, just kill time. So I was just walking around at Walmart, like half starving to death. And, <laughs> and I'm like, what am I doing here? Where am I? And... Uh, and I was starting to think that they forgot about me. You know, I was, uh, I was starting to feel a little bit afraid of what is happening. And then uh, this other guy came and he got me and he took me to McDonald's and he bought me a hamburger, which was the first meal that I had in the U.S. So I devoured that hamburger like it was, you know, the best food ever. And uh, it was delicious. And I know McDonald's is not the most healthy. My sister is a big health nut, so she's probably, ah. But it was delicious at that time. I didn't know any better. Uh, and so this guy took me to an abandoned house, and he said, I'm going to come and get you tomorrow. And by this point, you start to notice that when they say tomorrow, <laughs> it could be a long time from today. Uh, so I, I spent the night there. And for the first time in my life, I had this, uh, 
I think I'm gonna cuss in church if you forgive me for that because I gotta say it. It was a it was a holy shit moment. Forgiven. Thank you, thank you. Um, imagine yourself 15 years old and you haven't ate anything for a week except a hamburger, and you're in an abandoned house. You don't know anybody. You don't know where you are. You don't know if anybody's coming because by this time you you know you start to learn that tomorrow means a week from now. And I start to miss my mom. I said, you know, like, uh, I start to regret all the things I did. Uh, and just miss my mom cooking. I, made her, I miss her yelling at me, telling me to shape up or, or else. Uh, and I remember this. My mom is very spiritual. She's, uh, she belongs to a spiritual religion. So every time she, she's not a Christian per se. But every night she would pray for her children and she would light a candle. And, um, and so I remember she was always doing that. And at that moment, I remember that in my head, this 15-year-old kid. And I say, you know, this is a very good moment to pray. <laughs> and so I closed my eyes. And for the first time in my life, I actually pray like I meant it, you know. And I don't, you know, it was... Nothing deep theological. I just say, God, you got to help me get out of this. You got to help me to get to where I need to be. And then I say, God, I, 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 say, I promise you I'm going to be a good man. <laughs> um, and so let me tell you the background story of what happened. What happened is um, they were going to abandon me at this house because uh, the smuggler needed more money. And somehow my brother didn't know about it. And the cousins found out. And because we spent a whole week together <laughs> in a hotel room, me and the cousins, we, kinda, we got very close. So they felt sorry for me. And so they contacted my brother and they asked him to wire the money to the smuggler. And so that saved my skin because otherwise I was going to be abandoned at this place. And so the next day the guy showed up. You know, I was very surprised by that. And he gave me like this fake ID with a lame picture of a kid that didn't even look like me. <laughs> and he said, that's your name right there. And he said, when you get to the second checking point, you're going to get on the bus and you're going to Dallas. And he said, you're going to have to lie to a, a border patrol officer to his face. It's no big deal. <laughs> And he said, you got to tell him that you're going to go to Dallas to see your aunt. And I was kind of questioning his plan because you just didn't seem like this idea didn't look real, even to me. And I didn't, you know, even me, I didn't know any better. So anyway, so, and he bought me some socks because I, I wasn't wearing any socks. I wear socks now. They're no-show socks. <laughs> so you say, you know. Um, but at that time, I didn't have any socks, so he brought me some socks and a candy bar uh, for breakfast. So, you know, I got two meals in a row. So there I am at the bus, tagging along, and then they stop the bus, and the Border Patrol officer gets on, and he was a Latino guy. And if, uh, if you don't know this, uh, usually Border Patrol officers who are Latinos tend to be the meanest. So when he got on the bus, I got really scared. I thought, oh, man, I pray this goes well. 
and I got my new tool in my tool belt, prayer. <laughs> so, um, so he starts checking IDs, and he comes to mine, and I give him my little ID, and I look at him, and he look at me, and he says, what's your name? And I give him the name of the car, and he said, where are you going? I said, I'm going to see my aunt to Dallas. And then he look at it, he looks at me, and then he smiles. And I'm like, oh, man. Um, here he goes again. And uh, he gives it back. He didn't say anything. He kept going. Uh, he took a guy out of the bus and arrested him. And I thought I was going to be next. So that was a, we were, we were there for like the longest time ever. And then finally the bus engine started. And then they closed the door. And then we started moving. And I was like, yeah, sucker. <laughs> Um, and so I was like, I was like, yes, you know. Uh, so I came to Waterloo, Iowa, uh, biggest place uh, in the United States. It's <laughs> famous for corn. <laughs> um, so I went to, uh, to I went to high school in Waterloo, Iowa, and when I came to the United States, I was uh, very naive because um, you think the United States is good. In every, you know, you think everything is best in the U.S. That kind of rhymes, huh? Um, but then I started learning about racism, discrimination. I started, uh, you know, people look at me different because I have an accent. Uh, and I couldn't speak English well. To this day, I struggle <laughs> with English. Uh, and uh, so, you, you know, and then I started learning what it means to be undocumented. I couldn't get a driver's license. I couldn't get a job. I couldn't apply to college because they deny your application right away. They just, if you don't have a social security number uh, and you apply, you can be a uh, straight A student. I wasn't a straight A student. It turns out I was a good student. Uh, I was kind of nerdy and I, you know, I'm proud to be a nerd. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. And, uh, and so I was a good student, and I wanted to go to college, but they deny your application right away. They don't care if you are an honor roll student. Um, also, my brother became a citizen when I was a junior in high school, and he applied for me to get documents. And then I found out that it takes about 14 to 17 years to get an answer from an application. To get an answer, so you know, you wait all those years and it could be no, <laughs> and then that's it. Uh, and now it's even longer. Today, if you apply, it takes about 20 years or so. So it's getting worse, it's not getting any better. So when people say you should get in line to get papers, there is no line, and it takes a, a crazy long time. Also, by this time, because I was in the US longer than a year or two, they put a ban on you. If you go back to Mexico, you cannot come back to the U.S. in 10 years. So uh, either way, I was, you know, I had, every decision I would make at this point, it was, uh, I had to, you know, think really hard of what I wanted to do with my life. And uh, call it what you may, uh, I think it was a miracle. Uh, a couple professors from the University of Northern Iowa came and talked to some of the Latinos in my high school, and he says, 
You know, I don't care if you have papers or not. If you have a, GP, a good GPA and you're a good person and you want to go to college, just apply and see what we can do for you. And so I applied for college and I got accepted. And uh, they helped me out to, so that I was able to go to college. Now, at this point, I also had to make another hard decision because uh, when I was in high school, I went to a church that was very conservative, evangelical, uh, white middle class church. And my sister always makes fun of me because of this, because then when I became a Christian at the church, I wanted to convert everybody to, to be a Christian. You know, it's like, have you, are you sure you're going to go to heaven? And then people were like, ah, here he goes again, Orlando. Uh, but uh, these people were my family and my church. But then they were, uh, they didn't like it that I was here without documents. Because they believe, you know, in the Bible it says that uh, God created the governments and that we should obey the laws. And so they were quoting, quoting that to me. But then I will say, well, what happens to segregation and slavery it used to be the law. I don't think God created those things. And so they, they were not able to give me an answer to that. Um, and also in the Bible, in the Bible, there's a lot of laws that get broken. Uh, and, you know, how, how about that? You see, so it's biblical for me to break laws. Uh, <laughs> so I... Um, and, in and, you know, to top it all off, there is this great opportunity for me to go to college, you know, and if it's no God, I don't know what it is. So I decided to go to college. So I started out as an elementary ed teacher. I wanted to be a teacher for kids. I don't know what I was thinking at that time. I was, <laughs> now I'm afraid of kids. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And then I took a couple classes on religion, and I got hooked. Uh, I learned about, uh, you know, um, the Muslim faith, the Jewish, uh, Hinduism, Taoism, all of the, most of the churches, of churches, religions. And I also learned how to read the Bible academically, you know, like uh, the scholarly, like how the scholars look at a scripture. And, uh, and so I was like, I was addicted to that thing. I wasn't thinking about what I was going to do with my life and my career. Because uh, I was like, hey, I got the opportunity to go to college. I'm going to study what I want. And so I majored in religion. And uh, I wanted to be a, a, a professor, uh, 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 you know, and a biblical uh, studies professor or an immigration lawyer, one of the two. But then I, I keep finding out without documents, you know, it's hard for the doors to get open. Um, to get a master's degree, you also need a social security number. And so a lot of the schools, even progressive schools, uh, kept denying me. And they told me, you should go back to Mexico and get a student visa. And for those of you who don't know, to get a student visa, you have to show proof that you can pay for all the years that you're going to go to school and that you can pay for all your living expenses. So you have to show that you have all that money in the bank for you to be approved. And they, you know, they charge you like, uh, like a foreign, foreign student. So it's like, I think it's double or triple the amount. So I wasn't going to do that because I have zero money. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I, but again, um, you know, another miracle happened. 
St. Paul's School of Theology, the Director of Admissions, Alan Hernan, he received that email and he said, ah, a week ago I went to a seminar on undocumented students and now this week you're sending me this email, I would like to meet your student, you know, so he came up to, uh, to Iowa <coughs> to meet me and we talked and, you know, I was a good student all the way and uh, he said, like, yeah, apply, if you get accepted, we'll see what we can do. I didn't know anything about the United Methodist Church. I didn't know if I wanted to go to seminary, but my professor convinced me, he's like, you know, it's, it's your master's degree. So from there you can go whatever you want, just get your master's. It's like another stepping stone. Because you remember I'm waiting for 17 years to pass by so I can get an answer from immigration. So I came to Kansas City. I went to St. Paul School of Theology. I was pretty jaded with church because I didn't feel welcome at church based on my conservative experience. Um, by the way, I, yeah, I used to leave it at that. So, <laughs> so I, I didn't want to have anything to do with church. But at St. Paul, you had to do voluntary work at a church for at least, well, at, uh, the first year is four hours, and then the second year is 10 hours. So you had to be doing some ministry somewhere. So I, I guess I went to a Methodist church in Des Moines, Iowa. Uh, the name of the church was Trinity United Methodist Church. I was blown away when I found out that liberation theology was actually lived and breathed in a community where the oppressed people live, where you can interpret the scriptures as an immigrant and say that God is for you and God is fighting for you and God will overcome one day and bring justice to earth, and that you shouldn't give up hope. I was encouraged when I read the scriptures to see immigration stories right there, like when I read about Ruth and how she was an immigrant, and even the, the law said that no mobile should come to the Israelite community, and yet she came anyways as an undocumented immigrant, and that was powerful to me. And so I say, I felt my call to ministry right there. And I say, I want to be a pastor in the United Methodist Church. And then they say, well, you don't have papers, so you cannot be a pastor in the United Methodist Church. So, okay, here I go again. By this point, I was getting depressed because if you see this pattern continually, Resistance, just because you don't have uh, a number, a social security number. And I didn't know what to do. Uh, in 2011, my brother Jonas passed away in a car accident. And, uh, you know, that was very unfortunate, very, uh, very tragic in my life. Because he was like a parental figure to me and also the opportunity for me to get documents uh, in this country. So I was at a loss. I didn't know what I was gonna do, what was gonna happen to me. And in 2012, Obama passed Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. But uh, I couldn't apply until later. So when I graduated from St. Paul, I was working at a taco place, uh, 7.50 an hour, making tacos with my NDIV. So it was a highly educated taco that you were getting. <laughs> uh, 
So, um, well then finally I got my uh, work permit, my social security number, my driver's license, and it's, it's not a pathway to citizenship. You have to renew it every two years, and Trump is trying to take that away from all of us. And uh, you know, there's a lot of other uh, undocumented immigrants like me who got DACA and who are now developing their career. And it will be really painful to see them, to see that taken away from them. Um, and then in 2013, I met my beautiful wife, Emily DeVore, she's sitting right there. <laughs> and uh, we got married last year, July 16th. I, um, you know, when we met, I told her, you know, uh, babe, I'm an undocumented immigrant. I had depression problems, I'm an alcoholic. You know, and she's like, oh, that's interesting, tell me more. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, she didn't get scared by me. Um, and so, and we filed for an application for me to get papers in January, but it takes about a year and a half to get papers. Um, and so as of right now, I'm still a DACA recipient. So if Trump decides to get rid of DACA and deport all DACA recipients, I will be on that list. So uh, the, the threat is real, and the stories are real, and we immigrants are here, we wanna make a difference. You know, I'm a pastor and I'm a community organizer. I'm not a criminal, I'm not a rapist, I'm not a drug dealer. And so, so that's my story, and I'm sticking to it, so. <laughs> Thank you. I'm going to ask a couple of questions and then if we have time we'll open up for a couple more minutes of questions. Okay. Can I say something really quick? Yeah, yeah. So this is a disclaimer I want to give, sorry, before we start. Uh, I, was, I wanted to say this before I start. My story is not a, I pull myself up by my own bootstraps because it could be interpreted that way. I don't believe in that myth that you can pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. If you can see, a lot of people help me to be where I am. And so don't let people tell you to pull yourself up by your own bootstrap because that's not true. We all need people to help us out. So. Okay, so um, you've heard you know, about this series that we're doing and how we're having conversation about that. What, what is your advice to a community like ours? We're like a young you know, two-year-old church plant um, and we want to not just like let the conversation stop here. Mm -hmm. So how can we be helpful? So that's a, that's a very complicated question. <laughs> because um, let me tell you what we're doing at our church, and maybe that could help you a little bit. Uh, so at Trinity Community Church, we had the discussion about whether or not we should become a safe sanctuary church. And so we had a, during Lent, we had a series of welcoming our neighbor. And so every Sunday we would talk from the scriptures about what does it mean to welcome the immigrant into the church. And, um, and then after church, three of those Sundays, we had conversations about, you know, we, one of those conversations we have dreamers come and tell their stories. And so we heard from that. And we also talk about if we were a safe sanctuary church, what would it mean to have somebody stay at our church uh, who are in threat of deportation uh, proceedings. Uh, we also had the chief of police come and talk to us about the police, uh, what are the police uh, doing in regards to immigration, what are the policies, 
And we also had the bishop come on one of those Sundays and talk about uh, the immigration from the United Methodist point of view. And right now, we had those conversations, and right now we're on the second phase. Uh, we're trying to decide what we're going to do. If we're going to become a safe sanctuary church, or what steps are we going to take to help the community? Uh, one of those ideas is uh, we can pay for their bond, uh, because when immigration comes and they arrest you for something, uh, they, they keep you in jail, and you don't know for how long you're going to stay there, so you're afraid and you just want to get out. And sometimes people sign their own deportation without even knowing, and that's when they get deported right away. And uh, if you, somebody would pay their bond and allow them to get out and find an immigration lawyer, it would give them time uh, to slow down that process. Uh, another thing I was thinking uh, is to work with the police department and build a healthy relationship between the undocumented immigrants and the police. Because the police keep saying that they're not, even though in, uh, from Washington they're saying the police is working as ICE, ICE agents the chief of police in Wanda County, he says they're not going to do that. They, um, they're more interested in stopping criminals. Um, and so, and they want to have a healthy relationship with the undocumented immigrant community. And so, uh, I'm hoping that we can find ways in which we can bring both communities, uh, both communities together, the police and the undocumented immigrants, so that, you know, and nobody should be afraid to call the police to report a crime because you're afraid you're going to get deported. Uh, so that's, that's some of the things we're doing. Um, and I guess you guys, you guys know your people, your neighborhood, your congregation. And uh, you can also get involved with other churches and see what they're doing. Um, does that help? Yeah, thank you. And you answered my second question, which is about how your church was. Connected. Oh, OK. So I think we could probably take one or two. Yeah, I, I have one. I, I, so I would love for you to speak a little bit more. So this is something that I think a lot of people probably wrestle with. I, I know I have in the past quite a bit, but the whole issue of um, just law-breaking, right? Uh, law-breaking versus not law-breaking. So a lot of folks would look at even what the church's response would be, because that's technically illegal for the church to be a sanctuary, uh, a safe sanctuary for people, yeah? Just like it, it puts... Uh, the, the universities uh, who accept undocumented students, uh, it puts their institutions in jeopardy as well, I'm assuming. So uh, I would love for you to speak to like a faith perspective as to why like it is important for that to happen or what would you have to say to folks who are kind of wrestling with that question? Yeah, so <clears throat> if you read the scripture, it tells us that the law that we should follow is the law of love. So that's how the law should be interpreted in love. And, uh, and even in the, so the scripture says, you know, all the laws should be judged based on that. And so when you come to the New Testament, right, uh, you know, Jesus is kind of changing that perspective in the law, in, the, in himself, is uh, interpreting it as loving your neighbor as yourself. So law-breaking means that you should break laws that are unjust. Just like segregation and slavery, it used to be a law. You know, if you owned slaves, that was the law. They were your property. And if a slave ran away, he was a criminal. And anybody who helped that slave was a criminal as well. 
And somebody had to break that law and says that's not right, that's unjust, and we need to change that. And so if we're trying to say, if we're starting to say the breaking unjust laws is not Christian, then people who disobey slavery were not Christians. You see what I'm saying? And the same goes for segregation and the same goes for immigration right now. Immigration laws are not just, uh, there's not a pathway for us to come here with documents. Or once we are here, we're not allowed to uh, apply for documents. Even though we pay taxes every day, we pay taxes but we never get anything back. We don't get any of the services that are provided for people. So I I believe that um, those are unjust laws. Now, if somebody commits a murder or does something that is uh, damaging people, I, you know, I, that, that's a, I don't, I don't believe that those laws should be break, broken. You know, I think that those people should go to jail and uh, get deported as well. Um, but there is also forgiveness too. So um, you can get entangled into different things theologically in regards to Christianity. But uh, you always have to remember that we have the uh, law of love to obey. And you have to ask yourself, what does that mean in this time? And what is happening to our nation? So, does that answer your question? Oh, yeah. yeah. You, I was on your website not that long ago and noticed that you preached a sermon. Yeah. You shared a lot of scriptures. Would it be okay if I shared that? Yeah. Uh, with yeah. So I can share the link like, either in our email so you can hear a little more expansion of like scriptural information behind what we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like, um, just the, the being a safe sanctuary church isn't actually illegal. Oh, yeah. Um, it's not, just to answer that part of your question. Um, if we were, if you or any church were to take in people and hide them, that would be. Mm-hmm. Um, but to bring somebody into your church and to tell their story and to say they are here and we're protecting them because we believe that's right to give them due processing is what you're really doing and providing for people when you do safe sanctuary. Um, what it does is it would give um, ICE or Immigration Enforcement um, a really bad, um, what's the word? Um, Re- uh, public relations. Public relations. Yeah. If they came into a church and, mm-hmm. and took somebody out of it, it would be really bad publicity. So that's what you're protecting. You're protecting people by, um, by that alone. Um, you're not illegally holding them from ICE, if that yeah. helps. That makes sense. Yeah. And there is not a law that prevents ICE from coming into the church. They could technically come into the church and arrest them and deport them. So. Mm-hmm. It's a, I mean, it's a public statement to right. say we will be a sanctuary church, we will do that. And, <laughs> and there are legal ramifications to it, but it, it's a really tough decision to say, yes, we will be that safe church and, and essentially stand in opposition to a deportation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you. Right, no. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much.